I'm so glad you're here today. If you uh, have your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Really appreciate the songs and those that have led in, in worship. Hold to God's unchanging hands. One of my favorite songs. Speaks to the, the whole purpose, really, of a Christian life, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 6. Let's begin reading now in verse 10. Ephesians 6, beginning verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, and with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. For all the saints, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Our topic this morning is living victoriously for God. Living in victory. A lot of folks think they can't live that life. The Christian life is so hard. Uh, you know, I just, I'm not good enough. A lot of people are in the world, especially, have been tricked into believing that they have to be good enough before they can come to the Lord, as if they can somehow save themselves. And that's just not the case. We are in a war, and if we're going to live victoriously as a Christian, we've got to be aware that we're in a war. You know, the most important thing in war, one of the biggest advantages, is the element of surprise, isn't it? I've known Christians that seemed oblivious that we're in a war. They are sort of out to lunch, that we are under attack. They seem to think that we can sort of, you know, coexist with evil forces. That somehow we can be kind of neutral, and that, you know, the devil, he'll sort of respect our boundaries and, uh, you know, leave us alone. You sin over there, and I'll live my life holy, and the, never t the two will never meet. The Bible says that we're involved in a struggle. Notice in verse 12, it's called a struggle. The King James Version say we wrestle. It's a conflict, isn't it? And, and living victoriously requires me to know some things. And the first thing I've got to know is who is the enemy? Who is my enemy? What is he like? I mean, can he be manipulated? 
Is he approachable in some way? Can we have terms of peace? You know, sometimes countries will agree to disagree and be enemies, but they have a, a, a pact to pay tax as a ransom, so to speak. But we can't really coexist with our enemy. We're already in the war, and the negotiations have broken down. We're past that stage now. And the enemy wants to devour us without mercy. He hates us. Notice 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour. We can't coexist. When, when I read this verse, I think about a time I, one time I had a service call and I left, and it was an apartment complex, and I shut the door to the apartment, and right next door was another apartment, and they opened the door at the same time, and this enormous pit bull just lunged at me, and he was, he was hysterical. He was barking just without, out of control. His teeth were gnashing, and I mean, he was just, I get nervous thinking about it even. <laughs> The only thing that saved me is that that owner just yanked him back in that apartment. And if they hadn't pulled him in, I would have been terribly mauled. I mean, he didn't, you know, I've had customers say, well, just, you know, let him sniff you and he'll get used to you. (laughs) That dog didn't want to sniff me. He wanted to devour me. That's our enemy. There was no petting the dog. Living victoriously requires me to know the enemy, but it also requires something else. And that is, I've got to know the battlefield. You think about a, a war going on, what's the terrain, right? Where's the battle taking place? Think about Vietnam, for example. It was a very different war than World War II, because it was in a jungle as opposed to an open field. You think about Desert Storm, it was much different as well. It was a sandy place. And so even the camouflage, you know, was, was different. It's a different war. What's our battlefield? Where is the battle taking place today? The answer is found in verse 12. Notice, read with me again, for the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The American Standard Version says places instead of realms, but it's italicized. And that means it was not in the original language. It was added there by scholars who, you know, wanted to make it seem more clear. But I think the NIV in this particular case sort of does a better example. It's not a place, I don't think, but a realm of existence, sort of a spiritual world, if you will, as opposed to a place. It's not City Hall. Not the White House. It's a spiritual realm of a place. I had a friend one time, he said, Zach, that means government. Right? That, uh, that's government. I mean, rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, that's got to be government. I, I don't think that's what it means. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul identifies the God of this world. Notice, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Some versions translate that, the God of this age. I think the authorities of the dark world is referring to Satan's realm, his spiritual world. You know, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 13 that the government is actually put there by God. Notice, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Doesn't seem like that sometimes, does it? But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Government has a place, and it's been established by God, and its its purpose is to punish those who do wrong, the wrongdoer. They keep the order. And you might say, well, you know, government does some evil things. I mean, they torture people sometimes. They, they kill their citizens. I mean, government executed Jesus. And that's true. Government often does very evil things. Satan can infiltrate a government just like he can infiltrate a marriage or a business or the church. But the marriage and the business and the church are not the problem. It's Satan is the problem. Our struggle is not against government, but we are, we are part of a spiritual kingdom, aren't we? And earthly governments sometimes are threatened by us. And they interfere with the teaching of the gospel. They see our government, our kingdom, as a threat. Notice John chapter 18, Jesus now before Pilate, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. He said, if, if my kingdom was an earthly government, they would be fighting right now to try to keep me from being arrested. And I think we see a little bit of that in Peter, don't we? I mean, he takes that sword out and he's ready to go. He thinks, I think, at least at the time, that it was an earthly government. But Jesus makes it clear, our kingdom, our government, is a spiritual one. And the authorities of this dark world, I think, refer to that as the terrain. We are fighting an enemy that we can't see. He exists in another realm. Think about the soldiers fighting at night under the cover of darkness. Now, they've often got vision, uh, night vision goggles that sort of reveal... The, the, uh, the enemy, if you can't see your enemy, you're going to lose. And we can't see our enemy in the physical realm. We have to see the enemy by faith, don't we? If we're in a war, we also have to know something else, and that is the type of weaponry that we have. What, what does the enemy have? I want to look at two different weapons, so to speak, that the enemy has. It's not an exhaustive list, I don't think, but... In this passage, I think it's listed. The first one is Satan uses dishonest schemes. You to think about the word scheme there. Look with me in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil uses dishonest schemes to trick us. The King James in verse 11 says, Take your stand against the wiles of the devil. It's a word we don't use very much, isn't it? Remember the Roadrunner cartoons? I love those. And that, the reason, that was back when a cartoon was just a cartoon, right? There was no hidden motive, no sexual innuendos. There was no political agenda. It was just a mindless cartoon. And every single skit was kind of the same. He had the roadrunner, and he was a fast bird, you know, but he, he sort of looked like an ostrich, right? But he was fast. And then you had the coyote. He looked like a dog, but he was kind of mangy, and he walked on upright, which was strange, but he was still the dog. And how would he always try to get the roadrunner? 
He set a trap, didn't he? He would always set a trap. Have some spring-loaded contraption with a, you know, a punching glove or something that's supposed to come out and hit the roadrunner. It never worked, did it? Or he would have a, you know, a stick of dynamite and there'd be a box, you know, wrapped, gift-wrapped for the roadrunner. And, you know, he'd come eat the bait and run off. It was predictable. And it always included a trap. Do you remember what the name of the coyote was? Do you remember? Wild E. Coyote. Isn't that fun? I mean, people back then knew their Bible. And if you were a biblical scholar, you would think, hmm, that's a wild E. Coyote. That's a trap. The devil is just like that. He uses the trap to follow us. And he offers us sort of a counterfeit reward. And it only leads to destruction. Years ago, I had the good fortune of going to my in-laws. It was a wonderful experience always. And it was late at night, and we had overeaten. Everybody in the room was just, you know, sort of unconscious. It's 10 o'clock. And my mother-in-law says to father-in-law, she says, it's time for Twister to come in the house. And I like Twister. Twister was the in-law's West Highland Terrier. Little bitty white dog, barked all the time. Twister and I had a very good relationship. We understood each other. Twister stayed in his world, and I stayed in mine, and I really did like him, but Twister had a mind of his own. Now, you couldn't make the dog do anything. Twister did exactly what Twister wanted to do. So when mother-in-law tells father-in-law, bring in the dog, I thought, this is going to be rich. I can't wait to see them try to get that dog in the house. So I went out there to help, ostensibly. And I thought this is going to be great. So we went out on the porch, and Twister is way out in the back part of the backyard, in the shadows. I thought, this is not going to work. I can't wait to see him chase that dog all the way around the backyard. But to my great disappointment, father-in-law reaches into his bucket, and he pulls out a peanut, and he just snapped it. That dumb dog came right out of the backyard and went in the house. <laughs> I was so disappointed. The devil operates just like my father-in-law. Just kidding. Okay. He, you're probably going to hear about that. He, he lures us in with a scheme, doesn't he? And we come wandering. I mean, he doesn't chase me around trying to get me to serve him. That would be fruitless. He brings me in with the lure. And think about the trap. What does the trap have? The first thing it has is bait. And in our case, the bait is always a lie. It's a counterfeit reward. It never fulfills. But boy, does it promise. And in order to bait to work, for bait to ever work, I've got to have an idol in my heart. Bait can be a lot of things. It can be a coworker. That attractive coworker that threatens my marriage. It could be a spot on the volleyball team, right? My baby is going to get to play. This is great. We're going to be away from church 26 Sundays out of the year, but it'll be fine. No, it won't be fine. It seems fine. It seems exciting. How can a church service compete with the excitement of seeing your baby make a play? You know that. And if you're gone 26 weekends out of the year, you're going to fall away. Or at least you're going to have to really struggle. 
you'll lose relationships in the church, but it seems so good. Bait can be a lot of things. Bait can be a spirit of unforgiveness. You know, I've known a lot of folks, a lot of people that have a strong sense of right and wrong. You know, that's what is right is right, and what is wrong is wrong, and what those folks did to me was wrong. What, that, what these people are doing is wrong. And so I'm not going to forget it, and I'm not going to stop thinking about it, and I'm not going to stop talking about it. You know what they call that? That's a grudge, isn't it? Not forgiving people. Maybe you were violated. Maybe this was wrong. Maybe this situation was bad. If you're in a marriage, I can guarantee you, your spouse is going to let you down. But you do not have the right to hang on to never-ending anger against somebody. I mean, the bait can be anything, and it can be a good thing. That sense of right and wrong, that's a good thing before God. But if we don't forgive... It's a trap. Be honest this morning. Is there something in your heart that you refuse to give up? Is there something that you're so in love with that you will not give up in obedience to God? And if so, I will tell you that Satan will use that to trap you. But it's a trick. You may say, well, Zach, doesn't God want me to be happy? I mean, this makes me happy. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I would say, absolutely, God wants you to be happy. And following a scheme of the devil will never make you happy. It'll bring untold heartache. It will hurt you and everyone around you. Don't follow the scheme of the devil. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and 29, if your eye, right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into the hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is metaphorical. We know he's not telling us to, you know, mutilate ourselves. But he's saying you take radical steps to get that idol out of your heart. It may mean some dramatic changes. Maybe it means quitting a job where there's too much temptation. You saying I have to quit my job? I have. I haven't told you every reason I quit my job, my good job, many years ago. I was a corporate controller, and it was a, I was making bank, folks, but there was too much temptation in that environment. You may say, well, I don't know, that, that seems so radical. Please. Seriously, quitting a job is not radical? Giving up a girlfriend, that's not radical. Coming down from heaven and dying on a cross for people that hate you, that's radical. You may say, well, you know, Zach, I don't have an idol in my heart. I mean, there's nothing that I love more than the Lord, and I'm longing, I'm not longing for some sin somewhere. I, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to God, and I'm happy right here, and I don't want to leave the Lord's side. If that's you this morning, I would say God bless you in that. There are those who have trained their heart to be so devoted to the Lord that they don't have an idol. You think about Nathaniel. Remember when Jesus met Nathaniel? He said, when Jesus saw Nathaniel, this is John 1, he said of him, have here truly is an Israelite 
in who there is no deceit. Isn't that what you want to hear from the Lord? Man, here's Zach, you know, no deceit in his heart. I don't think he could with me, sadly, but you would think if you do not have an idol in your heart, that somehow that would exempt you from Satan. I mean, how can he get me with the scheme if I don't have an idol in my heart? But the fact is, the devil uses a different tool if you do not have an idol in your heart. If you have a pure heart, the devil's going to approach you with a different, a different weapon. Notice Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Satan uses a flaming arrow. You think about that. It's an arrow shot right at you from an enemy. And just to make it worse, we're going to set it on fire. That is an intentional, direct, unprovoked attack, isn't it? This is different than the scheme. We've all seen it, I think. Someone may be here today under the, under the, the, the arrow. We see it. People have a wonderful life. Their kids are happy and faithful. They, you know, the business is making money. They're involved with the church. They're growing in their faith. And then, without warning, you know, for no apparent reason, there's an attack. And sometimes multiple attacks without ceasing. You know, it's the illness that doesn't go away. That business that fails. The marriage that falls apart. Or the child that just breaks our heart. Now there's a scary verse in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is speaking with Simon Peter, and we get a little glimpse of Satan's world. He said, Simon, Simon has asked, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back to strengthen your brothers. Satan asked to sift you like wheat. I don't know what that means. I don't you know, understand that totally, but I don't want any part of it. I don't think I'll pass on the sifting. But we don't get a choice, do we? I can't decide. Sifting wheat, you know, is, was a process of sort of purifying wheat, wasn't it? They had a big strainer, and they would put, put in the wheat, and then they would shake it violently, and that, that shaking would knock out the dirt and the impurities, and then you had the pure wheat. And Jesus now is using that as a metaphor for testing, testing our faith. But notice something, Satan had to ask God for the right to sift. Satan had to ask. God is still in control. No matter what the, the trial is, God is still in control. But notice something else. Jesus did not say, I prayed for you, and the test won't happen. There won't be any sifting today. That's not what he said, did he? He said Peter was going to be tested. The prayer was that Peter's faith would not fail. And that, folks, I think that's the ultimate goal of the sifting. It is to cause us to lose our faith. If I can't lure you in with some sensual trap of some kind, maybe I can hurt you enough that you'll quit the Lord. Anybody ever heard someone say, you know, I just, I don't know why all of this is happening to me. I can tell you why. Because you have an enemy 
And he wants you to lose your faith. And he is directly attacking you. He may use an attack on your health or the business or the child or whatever, but the goal of the attack is to lose your faith, that your faith would fail, to give up. Why do I need God anyway? After all, look at what my life is going through. And if the story stopped there, it'd be very depressing, wouldn't it? But it doesn't, thanks be to God. We've got some tools of our own. I want us to look at our weapons, okay? Satan, at least in this passage, has two. But we have a total of seven. Think about it. We've got the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet covered with the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of spirit, and prayer. The Bible calls that the full armor of God. Does the devil have the avenue of prayer? No. Does he have truth on his side? No. He's the father of lies, isn't he? Does he have a helmet of salvation? No. We are much better equipped than the devil. I want us to look at some of them, okay? We're only going to get about four this morning, but you know, maybe another study will get at, at more. But notice, verse 14, Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Do you ever notice them? A cop or a soldier or a, even an electrician or a hunter or something. They usually have two belts. Have you ever noticed that? They got one belt for the pants and it's sort of, you know, canvas maybe or kind of low profile type of belt. And then they got another belt and it's thick. It's a, it's a tactical belt, right? You hang stuff on it. And it can support a lot of weight. It may have, you know, handcuffs and a flashlight and a gun and all this stuff. They're an electrician. They may have this tool pouch with all kinds of, you know, wire cutters and stuff. The purpose is to hang those tools on. If you hang the tools on your pants belt, your pants will come down. <laughs> I know from experience. <laughs> I don't have a belt. And when I put you know, a quarter inch and five sixteenths and a half inch and all that in my pocket, it's, it's a battle. But when the soldier needs a tool, what does he do? He wants it right there on his belt. Or the electrician, you know, what's he going to, is he going to go all the way to the truck every time to get the wire cutters? That's silly. Or, you know, hold on, Mr. Criminal. <laughs> I've got some handcuffs in the squad car. I'm going to run, get them. I'll be right back. That won't work. You've got to have it ready, don't you? When, it's, when you need it, you need it right then. And if there's something wrong with that belt, you're in trouble. I mean, if, if it has lost its integrity, then you're in trouble. The belt has to have integrity. I think that's why he says it's the belt of truth. Truth is everything for the Christian. All the devil has is lies. And if we believe a lie, if there is no resurrection, I would say that we are of all people most to be pitied. We've got truth. And we know some things that the rest of the world has no idea about. We know what it is to have contentment, don't we? You know, the world is hopelessly trying to find that. They are running after a sense of contentment. We know the truth about many things. We know what happens when we die. And the world is just guessing. They have opinions. We've got it recorded, what happens when I die. I know. You know, the world thinks that everybody's going to heaven, except really, really, really bad people, you know? 
We know the truth. Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. We know the truth. The world has told so many lies, I think that it doesn't even know the difference. You remember when Jesus was before Pilate? One of the things he said, you are a king, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate says, what is truth? A corrupt Roman politician didn't even know what truth was. The world has been told lies over and over again. There is, I think there's a mental condition, truthfully, that a person can have where they don't believe the truth anymore. They can't. They cannot distinguish between truth. If they say it, it's reality, and it doesn't even have to be true. But notice there's another weapon, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? We have a breastplate. You know, we had the breastplate and the shield, and both of those are defensive weapons. They've got similar purposes, you know, to protect and the breastplate was, was wrapped around the body, but the, the, the shield was held by the soldier. Wasn't it? And sometimes it would be held by another soldier. Remember, Goliath had a shield bearer, that that was his job. Today, I think the breastplate would be likened to a bulletproof vest, maybe, or something worn to protect the organs of the body. And you can say, well, why is, how is living righteously a breastplate? How does that protect me? I thought righteous people suffered. I thought righteous people were persecuted. And that's true. They are sometimes, aren't they? But there are certain problems that I can avoid, at least for the most part, if I live righteously. Can't I? Think about it. If I'm living righteously, I really don't have to worry about a jealous husband coming after me. I heard a statistic one time that 50% of all murders often have two things in common, adultery and alcohol. Someone gets drunk, they get mad at their wife, kill them. Or a jealous husband does that. If you're involved in those things, you are at risk. But think about the verse in Proverbs 13. Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. Living a sinful life brings with it a whole set of its own problems, folks, doesn't it? I mean, you can enjoy the pleasure in sin, but there's a special set of problems that a sinful life brings. Be honest this morning. Are some of the problems that you're feeling in your life right now, are they part of a sinful lifestyle? I mean, I know there's exceptions, folks. I really do. There's a beautiful passage that describes righteous living. Notice Psalms 106. How blessed are those who maintain justice who practice righteousness all the time. It's a practice. It's a way of life, isn't it? Other versions talk about it as a walk. Proverbs 8, I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. The practice of righteous living creates a protective barrier around me. Our habits become that way. Think about a mountain that has ruts in it, and when it rains, the water goes right to those ruts. If you've developed a habit of righteousness, when you're tempted, your natural response is the rut of, of righteousness. That's a practice that protects us. Another weapon is listed and is found in verse 16. He says, we take up the shield of faith to extinguish the arrows. We talked earlier about the arrow, didn't we? 
He said the ultimate goal of the arrow is to cause us to lose faith. But it's interesting to me now that he says the shield of faith is actually the defense against that arrow. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. If I'm walking by sight and things go wrong, when that arrow comes, I'll lose my faith because it doesn't make any sense to me. But if I'm walking by faith, I can withstand. We have a wonderful example of walking by faith in Job. You remember Job? Remember he was a wealthy man, had good health, had wonderful kids and a wife and so forth. And then the Lord allowed Satan to take it. Took his wealth, took his health and his children from him. And things were very dark for Job for a long time. But Job was walking by faith and not by sight. Notice what he says in Job 13. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if you kill me, Lord, I'll still trust you. Talk about faith. Faith is foundational, isn't it? And the wonderful thing about faith is it can grow. Even if you think a sin has power over you and you can't overcome it, that you'll never have victory. God can make your faith grow and you can have victory in in the Lord. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10 and verse 17. If you want to build your faith, if you want to resist the arrows of the devil, you got to spend time in God's word, don't you? And that leads us to directly the very last tool, that the sword of the Spirit. The Bible says it is the Word of God, isn't it? We have an offensive weapon. All of these before were sort of defensive, but this is offensive. It can do serious damage to Satan. And I know this because Jesus Christ the Lord used it when he was tempted. Think about it. Matthew 4, he said, but he answered... It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in verse 7, Jesus said, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And in verse 10, Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and worship in him only. Every single time that he was tempted, he quoted scripture. Knowing God's word is vital. I tell you, the fact that the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith are joined at the hip, aren't they? You get faith by staying in the Word. I knew a dear brother in the Lord many years ago. He'd been a preacher for for many years. He was an outstanding song leader. Had a beautiful, deep bass voice. Remind me of Nate in some ways. I can say that because he's not here. (laughs) Don't even get the big head. But he he was a beautiful song leader, and he was a very encouraging man. His name was Ted. And Ted had a son that was very ill most of his life, really. He had a degenerative illness that sort of, you know, required several surgeries, and he was not supposed to live beyond his teenage years. And his father really struggled to to sort of keep things together. He was a wonderful man. The surgeries were just extremely expensive. He had to take a job that made a lot of money in order to afford all of that. And the job was stressful and demanding. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, the no more were their dreams of early retirement. And there were no more dreams of being able to travel and you know, sort of enjoy his later years. One time he, he had a couple in the church and they, they offered to help Ted with his son. And so he allowed them to do that and, and then one evening they abandoned him, him without warning. And so he agreed not to do that anymore. He promised himself he wouldn't 
give anybody else that kind of authority. But he lived longer than his teenage years, but finally one day the little boy lied. And Ted taught a class of a, a group of men a few years later. And he talked about this difficulty, how hard it was to you know, deal with this terrible illness and watching a son that he loved so much die. And the men asked him, how did you, you know, how did you do that? How did you live through that? How did you stay faithful to God and all of that? And he said, I'm not bragging. He said, but I read my Bible three times a year. And he said, I read my New Testament more than that. You want to live by faith that will defend against the flaming arrows? We've got to sing God's Word, don't we? We've got the sword of the Spirit, and it can be used to fight temptation, but it can also be used as a comfort and a hope when we need it the most. So in a war, there's an enemy, there's a battlefield, there's, a, there's weaponry, but there's something else, and that's strategy. Don't you think about it. If we all had a bunch of good weapons and we were soldiers out on the battlefield just kind of wandering around, that wouldn't work, would it? The enemy would win. What good would that do? I've got to have a plan, a battle plan. I don't want to have friendly fire, right? I don't want to make some kind of strategic error and then lose. You know, in a war, generals strategize, don't they? They sit behind the door and they look at the map and they figure out scenarios. You know, if we do this, the enemy's going to do that. And that won't work, so let's take this other option here. After that strategy has been formed, after there's a clear plan that has been brought up, then the generals give the orders, don't they? They have a plan, and then they work that plan. Sorry, Keith. <laughs> That's his favorite thing, or one of them. They make that plan, and then they work it. They give orders to follow. So the last thing we've got to know is our orders. What does the Lord want me to do? What is my orders? What are my orders? I want to look at two specific orders that God specifically has given to us. Notice the first one is to pray. Starting in verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whatever I open my mouth, words may be given me so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Prayer or some variant of that is listed five times. We are to pray constantly. Notice Verse 18, praying in the Spirit. What in the world does that mean? Is that some kind of miraculous manifestation? Is that, does that mean that I sort of have some kind of out-of-body experience of some kind? I don't think that's what that is. There's a really helpful verse in Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You ever feel like things were in such a mess that you didn't know what to pray for? You know, Lord, this is, is such a mess. I, I don't see how this is ever going to work out. And I didn't even know what to pray for. I had a, a grandmother years ago that used to say that. She would say, I, when I pray sometimes, she had a very hard life. She said, I, I just say, Lord, help. Because I don't know. 
I don't know what to pray for. She just said in Matthew 6 and 8 that Jesus knows, the Father knows things before you even ask. You know, I had a boss one time, and I would go ask a question, and he would invariably misunderstand what I was asking about. And because I was lost and didn't know what I was asking, uh, we were in trouble. I was not able to express exactly what I needed the answer because I didn't know. And he was unable, really, to answer the question. And he would give me the wrong answer, or he would be an answer that was just superficial. He didn't really understand. And after that, I changed jobs and I got a different boss. This guy was brilliant, very intelligent. He um, had been in the Pentagon, just very, very brilliant man. And I could go in and talk to him, and I would start to ask a question about something. <laughs> I could tell he knew what I was going to ask. He knew the problem, and he knew the answer. And before I could even hardly get it out, he had the answer. That's such a better environment. Our Lord already knows what we're going to ask. We talk about that as the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what that's talking about. Regardless, Christians are to be praying all the time. We have great power in prayer, don't we? Notice James chapter 5, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was a man, and God listened to his prayer, and God will listen to our prayer. Prayer also does something else. Notice Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer brings peace, doesn't it? He doesn't say that it will be answered the way you want, but it does bring peace. Sometimes that's what we need the most. You know, I can handle the problem. Just give me a sense of peace about this. We have more, one more order from the Lord, and that is to stand firm. Read with me now in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to, take your, to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, verse 14. On and on and on. Three times he says to stand we're not to advance, we're not to retreat, but to stand. There's a beautiful verse in James 4. Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. We resist, we stand, don't we? And there's something very odd about that. It, it tells me that the devil will flee. If we resist, he'll run away. He may come back, but you know, for the moment, he's going to leave. That tells me something. First of all, it tells me that temptation is not forever. If you feel tempted today, if you feel like there's something, you, some sin you really want to indulge in, that verse says that if you will resist, the temptation will eventually pass. We think that it will never pass. We think we have to fulfill it. But you can always sin later, right? 
Resist now because there's always going to be an opportunity to sin. Why not hang on now? Do you ever sit down to eat a meal and, you know, you're right in the middle of the meal and the phone rings? You get up and you go to get the phone and talk on 20 minutes. It's something you have to take. And you talk through the conversation and then you come back to the dinner table and you're not hungry anymore. Have you ever had that happen? I have. Our appetite for sin will also pass. And if you stand firm, you may be surprised that sin didn't have the hold on you that he thought it did. But as we purposely choose to go on sinning, the Bible says there's no other sacrifice. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. But there's also a wonderful reward for standing our ground. Notice, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because we've stood the test. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. We get a crown of life. Isn't that wonderful? And that is it written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. You can't even imagine what God has prepared. What a wonderful promise. You know, maybe you're not living in victory today. Maybe sin has a stronghold on you. Maybe you're one that needs compassion today, I tell you. If you're feeling brokenhearted because of sin and the ravages of sin, there's a beautiful passage. I love it so much. It's Psalms 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you crushed in spirit this morning? You know, our earnest desire is to live in victory. And we want others to live in victory as well. Not as a slave to sin. Live as a victorious Christian. And use that full armor of God. If we can help you do that, we can help you begin your walk as a Christian today, or if you've fallen away and want to be restored or have the prayers, please want to get known to us while we stand and sing.